I just want you to tell me when I sound dorky. I want to sound cool and tough. I want to sound fucking tough and cool. Yeah, I want people to think I'm a bad bitch. Hey. <laughs> hey. hey. This is Bitch Face. Welcome to Bitch Face. I'm NK. I'm Phoebe. And we've got Elissa Dudley, our audio bruja. Bitch Face is about women of every age, women from all over, their thoughts on feminism and just like stories. Yeah, we've got some like original nonfiction. We're friendly and angry here on <laughs> Bitch Face. We're friendly and angry. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we're tough, but also soft. okay i think we should start okay we're gonna be riffing on the new year's revolution we know the resolutions you made a month ago were bullshit you You may have already abandoned them i've abandoned a couple of mine i haven't even started instead we're gonna talk about the new year's revolution maybe a little bit of restructuring a little bit of circling back shakedown reorbiting turning metamorphoses metamorphoses yeah yeah Yeah. and uh we're gonna talk about revolutions everything from you know feminist revolutions Uh personal revolutions political revolutions physical literal revolutions our first segment is a reading by yumi sakagawa illustrator and amazing comic book maker and she is going to read her new rituals for a feminist utopia Seven Rituals from the Feminist Utopia Pre-Birth to Post-Death In the third trimester before your birth, a map of the universe is drawn on your mother's swollen belly. You are a child of the cosmos. One hundred days after your birth, You pick a name that reflects how you feel inside. You tell the world who you are. On your seventh birthday, you wear an invisible crown where tigers roam and lotus flowers bloom. Your weakness is your strength. On your 16th birthday, you shave your head, take a vow of silence, and abstain from all new media technologies for exactly one year. Other people's opinions of you are meaningless. On your 40th birthday, you ingest the petals of a crystal cactus flower and walk through the crystal chamber of self-knowledge. You are visible to everyone. On your 80th birthday, you orbit your birth planet in a translucent space pod while sending prayers to all the beings below. We all look up to you. After your death, your ashes are used to form seed bombs, which are then scattered to all corners of the galaxy. Everyone is equally forgotten and remembered. This piece was in a collection of writings called The Feminist Utopia Project. So we talked a little bit about 
sometimes like the tension between I think younger feminists and older generations of feminists, like our moms and grandmas who yeah. we eventually talk to. Shout out to second of, wave moms. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, for real, shout out to second wave for sure. And But there are these differences that constantly come up in conversations I've had with even my sister, um, but also my mom and my grandma, mm-hmm. who I decided to interview for this. So you'll hear her. And I talked to my mom, who I've thought of as a feminist for a while, but who it turned out doesn't told me she doesn't even identify with feminism, even though I feel like I grew up in a really feminist house with my parents having a really feminist marriage. So it's interesting to hear, to talk to her just about like her relationship, especially to her work and her various identities as a woman and sort of how she was, I don't know, a model for me, despite her own relationship to feminism, which she says she has none, but I don't know. I think we kind of absorb certain things of our mother or grandmother or just women we spend time around or who helped raise us we kind of absorb their feminism and before we're even confronted with the question of what is our brand of feminism yeah exactly yeah it was definitely something I took for granted I didn't really think about it that much I didn't really think about the need for it until I was much older Mm -hmm. you know yeah eventually we want to have a lot of different kinds of women talking about their personal feminism. And, you know, maybe token man every yeah. now and then. Uh, yeah, let's hear from some male feminists, please. For this episode, we started with our families. We started with the matriarchs. I never considered my gender as being in my way or anything. I guess I was just very confident. It was a never an issue. And, of course, when I was young, that wasn't even talked about. This is my grandma. She and I argue about a lot of things. One particular argument stuck with me when she revealed to me this, that she doesn't feel like she's faced any oppression because she's a woman. Of course, I must say that my mother, I am sure, played a big role in this because she was a very independent, strong woman and uh, never saw any reason to feel that she would not measure up to whatever it was that men would do that she couldn't. It just was never an issue. She's surprised that in 2016, I still feel fucked with sometimes because of my gender. And I was equally surprised that she doesn't now, and rarely did, even as a newlywed Holocaust survivor with an Eastern European accent living in small towns in Texas and Oklahoma in the 50s. Well, of course, I was, as you know, married in 1953, moved to the United States, and the first thing that I noticed uh, when it came to male-female roles that I was addressed as Mrs. Herbert Unterman, and that was very foreign to me, very wrong, and I didn't understand why. I questioned some people, and in the 50s, I mean, they didn't even realize, those that I talked to, what do you mean? What's wrong? You are his wife. I said, yes, but I am me. I am Eva. I'm not Mrs. Herbert. Herbert is the one with the hairy chest, not me. (laughs) (laughs) To me, that is probably the one thing that I remember best about that era when women were considered Uh, I don't know how to say this, but sort of as an extension or property of the husband when they were married. And that, of course, never, I, I didn't like it and I never lived by it. 
While I accept this as her personal experience, I feel that saying women are entirely capable of freeing themselves from the patriarchal binds with self-confidence ignores systemic discrimination, which I feel like I see the effects of every day. At this point in our history, it's really the performance that matters more than the legal stuff which other people have done for us, like Rosa Parks and others. It was Gloria Steinem who just recently, I read, she said that when she reached the age of 50, she realized, hey, this isn't on a way to something or some place. This is it. So I think when women gain the maturity and realize that this indeed is it, make the decision then. But I don't think that one can, as a teenager, for instance, decide on this. Though, like, Gloria Steinem, for instance, is criticized a lot for sort of championing feminism for one type of woman, which is a middle-class white woman that sort of has a lot of options in front of her. The way I reacted to you originally telling me, you know, nothing was in my way, was saying that we're sort of beyond certain feminist problems, leaves out the women that, you know, aren't privileged or still, like, have a day-to-day bodily danger facing them. You speak from your your generation. I know many women who... I have worked their way up. As a matter of fact, I have several women friends who came from disadvantaged backgrounds. One is not a do- is in this country, but she's not documented. But uh, I really don't know anyone who works harder than she does. And she has three children, and I know them quite well. And uh, I am convinced that they are going to be successful because they are inspired by their mother and father. But we're talking about women. And then, inevitably, uh, the conversation meandered to talking about the Holocaust. Uh, Here's her busting my romantic theory that maybe being in gender-segregated barracks in the camps formed a sort of matriarchal utopia that formed her feminism. Okay, now that you brought this up, uh, women can do both good and bad. And, of course, my mother, I was so confident in her because she was confident in herself. It's not that she told me, you know, I'll tell you, that, for instance, the SS women felt every bit as evil and and horrendously, I mean, just awful as the men. So I never felt women can do this or men can do that. I see both as equals. I really always did. I always saw mother as the stronger person. My father was more of a melancholy person. My dad was not well at the end of the war. Uh, And mother just knew that she had a family and had to make sure that we had enough to eat and a place to live. And she always had that energy to continue. It was interesting revisiting this conversation. My grandma kind of carries herself like a feminist or it's kind of assumed, but she doesn't necessarily identify with feminism Mm -hmm. yeah that's kind of the same thing that my mom said she said she wasn't really sure like what that word meant but she sort of she wasn't uncomfortable with the label necessarily I think she kind of just like she wants to just sort of live her life kind of like what your grandma was saying she's like I'm just doing my thing whatever 
morning. It's another great day at the Aerosol team. This is Steve. How may Steve. I assist you? Hello? Hello. Hey, this is Nicole. Is, um, I'm calling for my mom. To get an interview with my mom, I had to make okay. an appointment. Mom? For as long as I can remember, my mom's been busy. She's been really successful, so she's also been really hard to reach. It's something that's kind of an issue between us, even though there's a part of me that acknowledges, never to her, that she's kind of a badass. I always felt like when we were younger that you had, you did have this like very prominent separate identity from being our mom or, or from like the family, which is like being this sort of public figure. It wasn't a matter of saying I need a separate identity. I think I, it was important for me to have a career to be a better mom and spouse. I think I knew very early on I was not a type of person to stay at home. I would not have been a happy person staying at home. That just, that just wasn't me. From the time I was 11 until I was 17, I lived in Tennessee with my mom and my sister. My parents were still married, but my dad lived elsewhere. During the last seven years of his military career, he moved around alone, without us. That situation was always intended to be temporary, and it was but not before it became the primary tension in my relationship with my mom. Some things about the way that your marriage works seem really feminist to me, or like specifically about how you didn't compromise about, you know, just certain decisions you made regarding your job. Like you were saying, being a military spouse was difficult. I'm being vague and because I'm not sure how to word things. I don't want it to sound like I blame my mom now. And I also don't want to remind her that I did blame her then. Being a military spouse was difficult. And I think one of the most like difficult parts of like my childhood and like I you know again we've never really talked about it but was sort of the decision to stay in Tennessee while dad like moved around every couple of years are you willing to talk about like what your thoughts on what your thought process was at that time or it was a plan to stay in, in Tennessee then she began to explain the logistics which I already knew you know that he knew that when he was going to retire there and I said well if you're going to retire it makes more sense for me to stay here so that at least one of us has a job right so, so we made that decision. The part of it was to you know, make it more stable for you guys. Part of it was you know, a business decision. Would I make that same decision now? Not sure if I'd make that same decision again. It was a hard decision. And he wasn't happy about that at the time. And in the end, it turned out to be a great decision because he was able to come back and, and be a county commissioner and things like that. And if we hadn't had a job and things already in place, some of the things we did, we would would not be able to do what he would not have been able to do. I didn't realize that was a decision that you guys had both made together because it was never really we never really talked about it as a family. So I actually had no idea like what was what the thought process was that went into that. I mean that was like particularly difficult for me. For you to say like, oh it was a great decision. It's like I, I don't know, I sometimes just wonder like if that hadn't happened, what my relationships with both of you might be like. I think they would be different. Well, yeah, and that's what Daddy will say, that, you know, he didn't get to spend as much time with you mm -hmm. that um, he would like to. So that's one of the things, he, you know, he talked about, where he got to spend more of that with Ashley than he did, you know, yeah. with you. So I that, see that. They have a great relationship. But I don't know if I would do that, make that choice again or not. I, you know, I was 11 or 12, maybe I wouldn't have understood. Even if feminism had been a thing we talked about in our house, like, maybe I wouldn't have understood that then, but... Right, because even your perception of that you grew up in a feminist household, would your thoughts have still been that way if I had basically gave up my career and just moved around? I mean, there were things I just have never... I never asked about that I had a lot of... made a lot of assumptions about, or, like, kind of... I guess when I was in college and I said I was writing about some of the things that had been difficult for me growing up, I had a teacher who sort of was like, well, maybe the reason your mom made these decisions or this decision was X, Y, and Z, but 
not really taking into account that like a that you would have made those decisions obviously with your partner um and then also like maybe your motivations were not what i assumed that they were So we kind of covered our perspectives and those of our, you know, foremothers. But if we're talking about revolution, we can't do that without talking about Shulamith Firestone, one of my fave radical feminist ladies. Uh-huh. Um, 1970, The Dialectic of Sex is her seminal work. Seminal work. Mm-hmm. And I learned a lot from it. But one of the pieces of it I found to be super interesting was her sort of rehashing this 50-year gap between the first and second wave feminist movements. She kind of touches on how a lot of perceived liberation was happening, but she breaks down what a radical interprets what was actually happening. Yeah, yeah, like every 10 years she said, you know, women thought they had achieved sort of a form of liberation in this way, be it through their presentation certain like rights that maybe were won along the way but how there's always sort of a creeping backlash it's sort of pushing back against that and or it's like a false revolution of sorts like it feels like liberation it looks like liberation you saw that a lot in the third wave also with like sort of sex positive feminism where it's like is this really now we're kind of asking ourselves like is this really empowerment that kind of thing so we really wanted to like use this piece in this episode but it's pretty academic and kind of dense and wordy so we thought it'd be better to sort of bring this work to the masses with a, it was like a translation. I feel like I wrote a translation of her work. Um, An English to English translation? Yeah, yeah. it was like translating ac- like academies. Uh, that's not a word. <laughs> I like <laughs> you know academies. I mean? <laughs> but translating that sort of like very, uh, sort of elite academic language into language that everyone can understand and say. NK got an MFA. <laughs> Yeah, I did. (laughs) I got an MFA in feminist translation. (laughs) Um, No, I didn't. Call 40628-B-I-T-C-H for your English-to-English feminist translation. (laughs) We also reached out to a bunch of people to contribute to this reading. So you're hearing a lot of voices. This is from The Dialectic of Sex, and it's a piece called The 50-Year Ridicule. From the Dialectic of Sex, The Case for Feminist Revolution, Shulamith Firestone, 1970, a paraphrasing. By 1970, the rebellious daughters of a wasted generation didn't even know there had been a feminist movement. What was left of it? Just the unpleasant residue of that aborted revolution, along with an amazing set of contradictions. On the one hand, women had won access to education but they found that they couldn't put their new degrees to use. They'd won the freedom to fucking dress however they wanted, but it turned out they would still be sexually exploited. They had won most of the legal freedoms, the assurance that they were now considered full political citizens, and yet they still had no power. All the frustration of their trapped position were amplified by the latest incarnation of mass media. Flooded with hypersexual images of themselves, Women were bewildered by the ways they were distorted. And then they were pissed off. In this historical interpretation, feminism is the inevitable response to the technology that should have freed women from the tyranny of reproduction. But as long as an entire class system is built on this one biological condition, scientific developments that could help the feminist cause by getting rid of the connection between sex and childbearing 
will just languish in laboratories instead, if they ever materialize at all. Feminism has always had a cyclical momentum. After every advancement, there comes a swift backlash, which only illustrates the political nature of the problem. The goals of feminism can never be achieved through evolution, but must be demanded via revolution. However it evolves, whatever its origins, power will not be given up without a struggle. Breakup trigger warning. This is a piece from Selfish Issue 1 by Kelsey Nolan called His and Hers. One. A month is a long time. Not enough time. Too big to feel rushed. Too small to make sense. Too much to share this apartment. Too little to make plans for next Tuesday. Drinks with friends. Too big to quit crying at your desk. To stay hydrated. Five years is a long time. Not enough time. Long enough to forget how to look at strangers. How to get a drink alone. How to remember to get the mail. Short enough to mourn the future you plan together. Too long to not get married. Too short to see Greece, a mortgage, Bonnie Vare, again. Long enough for those to be yours. Calm down, he says. Pay attention to me, you say. What you've both always said. What you would have said for the next five years. Two, things with longer shelf lives. A dress you've had since high school. The car you swore would give up. A trash can that served as a hamper in your college days and now holds crafting supplies. Things you made together. Bookshelves from an online tutorial. Your names on the mailbox. The tangle of shared wires behind the TV. Dirty clothes in the hamper. Things you never realized were easily split. His computer. Your Tupperware. His records. Your books. Things you haven't touched since the first move. A painting leaned against the nightstand. Purses you thought you'd cycle through. The stovetop grill he meant to try. Things you expected to last but instead fell apart. The couch you reupholstered. The watch he gave you. The used patio furniture you inherited. The friendship with your neighbors. But. Three. How long until you stop using the shared bank account? How long until you won't look at the daybed he loved for naps? The coffee table you ruined with glue and paint. The thermals you permanently borrowed without thinking of him. How soon until you appreciate the absence of things you secretly hated. The paisley print wall decor. The faux bearskin rugs. The unfixed broken bathroom doorknob. How far will this tube of toothpaste go? How much time will pass before you cave and buy a vacuum, a DVD player, a bed? And the bright red chair. He bought it. You love it. Who will keep the houseplants alive? Who will use the spices? Who takes the pictures? The leftover booze? That's it, ladies. This is the end of episode one of Bitch Face. This is a podcast happening every month. You can find us on the internet. You can find us on the interwebs. And And we really do want to hear from you, so please call or text 406 28 B-I-T-C-H, that's 40628. 
to a bitch. To eight, bitch. To eight, bitch. <laughs> We're going to end this episode with our bitch faces on. Yeah. Show us your bitch face. Hashtag bitch face. Yeah. Whatever platform you prefer. We don't give a fuck. You've been listening to Sad Sax Song, an original song by our friend Leah Menser in Chicago. Maybe that can inspire some tearful messages that you're going to leave us on our answering machine. Looking forward to it. See you, bitch.